Passion 2017 is more than a conference. It's the Jesus generation united for his fame. Join tens of thousands of 18 to 25 year olds for this incredible gathering hosted by Louie and Shelly Giglio and Passion with guests Chris Tomlin, Christine Kane, Crowder, Beth Moore, Matt Redman, John Piper, Hillsong United, Levi Lusco, Christy Knuckles, Francis Chan, and more. January 2nd through the 4th at the Georgia Dome. Sign up today at passion2017.com. Well, when I was a kid, I spent one Christmas Eve at my grandmother's house in Beeville, Texas. And so my brother and I went to bed Christmas Eve evening with uh, visions of presents under the Christmas tree in our minds, right? But when I woke up the next morning, uh, it was not to the promise of presents down the hall, but it was to a work boot nestled in between my ribs and pushing me up and down on the bed in rhythm with a voice that was saying, hey, 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 get up. And it was my grandma's boyfriend, James. And so I saw him as he walked over to my brother and did the same thing. And then he walked to the door of our room. But before he exited, he turned around and he said, get dressed, get in the truck. And so he walked out. So we got dressed and got in the truck and began to start driving down the freeway with James, which it's important to say at this point, James was ancient. And so uh, as we were driving, we were concerned for James's life because he was breathing with this heavy rasping. He was like, <sighs> and I'm like, oh, we're gonna lose this guy. And then I was concerned for my life because as he would drive, he would just sort of veer off the road under the shoulders. So I'm helping him stay on the road. And so on and on, we're driving in this truck down main roads, down back roads, down dirt roads, down no roads, until literally at one point we are bouncing along in a field and then he just stops. And as soon as he stops, I remember about 50 cattle come running up next to the truck and line up shoulder to shoulder in line. I'm like, where the heck are we? And James looks over at me and says, get out of the truck. So I get out of the truck and it's freezing out there. I'm like, what am I doing? He goes, get an ax out of the back. Okay, so I go and get an ax out of the back and then I walk back up to get in the cab of the truck because it's freezing. But as soon as I reach for the door, he hits the gas. And the last thing I hear is James going, cut firewood, and then he drives away. And then the last thing I see is my brother's face pressed up against the back of the truck glass going, where is he taking me? And I'm like, what am I doing here, right? And off he goes. And as the truck leaves, suddenly I see on the other side uh, a tree that had been felled by lightning, which is apparently my work for the day, Merry Christmas. But I remember before I uh, commenced to chopping, um, I prayed. I sat down, and I remember saying at that moment, God, what are you doing? <laughs> you ever had an experience like that? Not like cattle out in Beeville, not that kind of thing. But have you ever been in a moment of life where you go, this is so distant from my expectations. God, what's, what are you doing right now? Why would you organize life this way? Christmas is supposed to be around a Christmas tree with family, not around a dead tree with cows. Why would you do that? Or maybe you look and go, God, bodies are supposed to be healthy. So why is mine still sick? Why are you doing this? Or God, I should be married by now. And I'm not, why am I over here? Or my career should be at this point, And instead I'm going backward. Like, God, what is going on right now? Have you ever been in a moment where you go, are you even driving? And it's not that you want to accuse God of being evil, but maybe just inefficient. You're just like, I would organize it differently. We could do this better. 
For me, I don't know about you, but I think about that every time I read the infancy material in Jesus's life, because I kind of think about that in Joseph's situation. I don't know what was going on in Joseph's mind, but he's about to get married, and suddenly God says, hey, hold off, your wife's getting pregnant, she's gonna have a supernatural kid, and you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. We're gonna be the parents of the Son of God. And then you gotta take a donkey ride for days. And then by the time you get to Bethlehem, he's knocking on doors. And for me, I always visualize that moment of a husband trying to be protector. And as the night drags on and his wife is extremely pregnant, he just keeps getting turned down by one innkeeper after another. Now I wonder, at what point does he go, really? Can I just get a bed somewhere like, God, you're sending angels to Mary, angels to Zechariah, a host of angels to some shepherds. Couldn't you dispatch one to talk to an innkeeper and tell him, give him a bed? Why would you do that? Or for Mary, go, you're going to supernaturally impregnate me, but you can't miracle me to Bethlehem? Like, why is it with every lope of a donkey, you're like, what do I got to take to get miracle travel status? And you just look at that and you go, why, why is he doing that? Is there any purpose to his planning at all? Is there any logic to his timing? Do you ever question God that way? I remember riding in the car with my dad once when I was a kid. My dad had just gotten sick and his illness cost him his job. And I remember driving with my dad and he just asked me as a kid, he said, do you think there's a purpose to all of this or are we just kind of existing? You ever look around and go, is there a logic to the way he's doing this? Is there a plan behind any of it? Well, it's interesting. I don't know if that's what Joseph was feeling. I feel that for him sometimes of the chaos of that moment. But a fascinating thing happens in Luke chapter two. In the midst of the chaos comes a moment of clarity. They walk into the temple and this old man walks up and takes their baby and starts praying. And he says, sovereign Lord, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. In the midst of the chaos, this man has peace. I may now depart in peace. How does he have peace in the midst of the crazy? Well, if you notice, it's because he's got perspective. He says, because my eyes have seen what you've prepared. He sees purpose in it. He says, I have peace because I see purpose. And for us, if we're gonna have peace in our life, we need to get a sense of that perspective as well. And sometimes it's hard when you're in the moment. It's like driving with Google Maps. As I've moved to Atlanta, I look down sometimes and all I see is my little arrow and that little blue line. I'm like, where the heck am I? And I start to wonder, does she even know what she's doing anymore? <laughs> and so what happens? You got to pull down and zoom it out to see the whole path and go, oh, you are actually taking me to Alpharetta, right? <laughs> and so here, I don't know if they lost perspective or if we lose perspective when you're living in the moment, but this guy pulls the lens back and say, no, something's been prepared here. And so I want us to look at what's the preparation he's talking about, because here's the deal. If we can understand God's purposes for why he did things the way he did to Mary and Joseph and Jesus back then, it will help us understand why he messes with your life the way he does in 2016. But to get a sense of that perspective, we gotta zoom out. This guy says God's been preparing something. And you go, preparing what? How do I know that? Well, we gotta back up and we gotta back it up all the way to Genesis. Because in Genesis, if you remember, Adam and Eve were walking with God in union with God and they rebelled against him. Broke faith with God, and in doing that, broke fellowship with each other. The whole world broke. Chaos entered the scene. And yet in the midst of our sin and all the damage we knew it would do, that, in that very moment, God promises a solution. And it's not a list of rules, it's a boy. 
He says a boy is gonna come. And in Genesis 3.15, he calls him the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the one who deceived you. Which is an interesting thing to call a boy because women don't have seed. Now, I'm not gonna go into details about that. If you have any questions, you can ask Aaron later. He'd love to talk with you about that. But there's a boy that's gonna come from that woman and he's gonna fix things. And so that's where Eve didn't even have a name before that. As soon as they're told that, Adam goes, I'm gonna name you life because life is coming from you. So she has a boy named Cain, which Cain means, I got one. I got a boy. Maybe he's the boy. But then she names the second kid Vanity, which some commentators think she thought, I have the boy. And then when she saw her two boys fighting, she was like, never mind. There's something wrong with these kids, right? <laughs> Little later on, Noah's dad calls him Noah because that name means rest. He says, maybe my boy is the one to give us rest from the curse on the ground. No, that's not him. And history rolls on. And you see in Genesis, God is sweeping in Genesis 1 through 12 that you see Creation in one and two, the fall of man and the devastation of Genesis three. You see humanity break in four and five as brokenness with God becomes deprivation, violence, sensuality, unrestricted in the way we deal with each other until finally you see judgment under Noah and then you see God raise a new generation but we're still broken because there's something wrong with us. But then in Genesis chapter 12, God zooms in and instead of going macro picture, the rest of Genesis, he focuses on one guy, Abram. And he comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and he tells him, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all families on the earth will be blessed. So he tells him, I'm gonna do something with you, Abram, that's gonna bless the whole world, but I need you to move and so he takes Abram from Ur and the Chaldees, which I think we got a map of here. Bam, there it is. Abram's over here. And God says, I want you to move to this little strip of land along the Mediterranean. And if you notice, Abram had to go in an ark here. He couldn't take a straight line. It would have been shorter, but see how it's brown out there? That's the desert. People die out there because uh, they get thirsty. And so he had to follow the rivers here along what historians call the Fertile Crescent. You remember that class? Fertile Crescent. Anyway, that doesn't matter. But God leads him right here to this little strip of land, lives his whole life there, dies, that's it. That's what I wanted from you, thank you. That's where Genesis ends. But then Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. After a life encountering meeting with God, his name is changed to Israel. So now Israel has 12 sons. Turns out 10 of those boys hate one of their brothers, which happens sometimes. So they sell him into slavery, which, which happens sometimes. Um, <laughs> Meanwhile, while he's down there, suddenly famine breaks out in the land up here. But meanwhile, God just so happens through his sovereign care to make the brother they sold second in command in Egypt. And so these 12 sons move down into the womb of Egypt right when their brother's in charge. He forgives them because he said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so there in the safety of Egypt, these 12 sons, their families begin to grow. And the 12 children of, Ab of Israel become the 12 tribes of Israel. There in that moment, Egypt gets concerned about this growing population, and so they enslave these people. And so God raises up Moses. You remember him? Let my people go. And he gets the people out of there. And he gets them out of there, and the whole book of Exodus is about getting them back to this strip of land that God seems to be particularly interested in. And you see, he leads them into what keeps, the Bible keeps calling the promised land. Called that because it was promised to Abraham. And so they get to this strip of land. They're never quite the people they were meant to be. God said, if you follow my laws, I will make you the PR agents to the world. They'll see how blessed you are and they'll wanna know you're God. But Israel's always a bit of a train wreck, always a bit of a mess. The best they do is under King David and God loves David and says, I'm gonna have come from you a king who will rule forever. 
but it's not David's son. He's a mess, and his children are even worse. The kingdom divides under Solomon's son. The northern kingdom persists in its disobedience against God, and God keeps warning them as they get infatuated with the idolatry and sensuality and violence of all the nations around them. He says, if you persist in disobedience, I will kick you out. They persist. So in 721 BC, they're wiped out by Assyria. The southern part of the kingdom remains faithful sort of for a time, but God keeps warning them as they persist in disobedience. In 586 BC, they're wiped out and sent all the way back to where Abram came from. And yet from there, as they go into Babylon, the factory of idols, they realize that which they were so fascinated by is actually death to them, and they start to seek the true God again. And your Old Testament closes with people like Nehemiah and Ezra leading the people of God back to this little strip of land that by the time the Old Testament closes, God seems to be very obsessed with. But that's where the Old Testament ends off, but history continues. And we know that in 300 BC, a guy by the name of Philip was ruling in a place called Macedonia. He had a little son named Alex. He got his son Alex a tutor named Aristotle who taught that little boy in military arts and philosophy so that when Philip died, Alex at age 20 took over his father's kingdom and from age 20 to age 32 conquered the entire known world. We know him as Alexander the Great. 12 years, he conquered all the way to India and then promptly died. He was like, I'm the king of the world. And he's gone. <laughs> but not before he did one thing. What did he do? It was called Hellenization class. Do you remember that? Hellenization making us like the Hellas, like Greece. He did something the world hadn't seen since Genesis. He taught the whole world one language so that suddenly we arrive in a moment of history where everyone can communicate. They speak Greek. His kingdom divides among his four generals, none of which were as competent as him, but that didn't matter because a new power was rising in the West. And in 63 BC, the Roman Empire conquered the entire known world. That power was consolidated under the Caesars in 27 BC, and Caesar issued a time called the Pax Romana. Do you remember that class? The Pax Romana, the time of peace. That suddenly as the world was being governed by one government, they brought peace to the region. And then Rome was famous for something. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, right answer. <laughs> roads. They're roads. You ever heard the statement, all roads lead to Rome? Suddenly, as they rule the entire world, they begin to build a system of roads that are so well built. Do you know they actually exist today? I took my wife to Rome and I was like, I want to walk on the Appian Way. That was one of my goals when we got to Rome. I was like, those were the very stones the Apostle Paul walked upon. I want to go there. And I remember we took a bus out to the Appian Way and we got there. There were 18 wheelers zooming down the Appian Way. I was like, flee, flee the Appian Way. Not near as peaceful as I thought it would be. Yet those are some pretty darn good roads because they're still using them. And so you gotta catch what's going on here. Something very interesting is happening in the world. Suddenly you have a time of peace because of a common government and peace allows travel, right? Why do you travel in peace? Well, think about it. You don't vacation in Somalia. You don't travel where there's no peace. But when there's peace, you feel free to travel because there's safety and you wanna do it because there's trade. If I live out here, hey, I got some things you might want. You got some animal furs. I got some oils. Let's make a deal. And you begin to trade. And all of a sudden, people can do that. Why? Because they got a common system of roads to get there, a common government that gives them peace. And because I can communicate to you because I speak the same language. So you have this fascinating moment in history where suddenly the world has gotten very small. This is where that little piece of land gets interesting. If you look at it, it's just 10,000 square miles of real estate. Not a whole lot going on there. But there's something true of that little piece of land that's not true of any other piece of land on the planet. It is the one 
connection point on the globe of three major continents. So if you want to trade anywhere in the world, you're up here, want to trade with them, you're down here, you want to trade with them, you're going to pass through this little strip of land. You're not going to go that way. People die out there. You're not going to take a boat through this in the opening. Those boats are little wooden and unsafe. You're going to bounce along the coastline. So if you're going to interact in the world, you're going to pass through this little piece of land God's been obsessed with. And it's at that little location at this time in life where suddenly God approaches a little teenage girl and says, hey, I know you got plans for your wedding. I'm going to blow them up because you're about to get pregnant and Joseph's not the daddy. But go ahead and call that boy Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Galatians chapter four says, in the fullness of time, God sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. There's a logic to God's timing. Yes, why did he come for our salvation? The sovereign Lord is planning his salvation so that Jesus Christ could be born at this moment in history, in this place, live a perfect life we could not. And then he marches into what Ezekiel called, O Jerusalem, at the center of the nations with countries all around her. And Jesus Christ, according to Romans 5, it says, do you see it? At just the right time, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That at the perfect time, in the fullness of time, the Son of God arrives. Why this timing? Is there a logic to God's timing? Yes, the logic is he's prepared in the sight of all the people a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Why did he do it this way? Because if you love somebody, you're going to make sure when you declare your love, it's a message they'll hear. So I had a buddy in college. Decided he liked a girl wanted to somehow communicate his love, and he realized I should invite her to the formal that my organization is holding. Because to invite someone's a formal, kind of a big deal. They gotta buy a dress and get all dressed up. You gotta get a nice outfit. It, it communicates a level of commitment. And so he wanted to do this, right? But he didn't wanna just ask her, be like, hey, do you wanna go to this formal or whatever? Like, he was a little too creative that, for that. So he wanted to come up with a way to communicate to her that this was a big deal. And so he got a bunch of buddies together and began to plan so that on the fateful day, as she was driving her bus route, she was a bus driver on campus, which is a normal thing for college kids at A&M. Anyways, as she's driving her bus, she pulled up at the first bus stop, opens the door, there's a guy standing out there with a sign, just random guy, but the sign has her name on it. She's like, can I help you? Why are you, that's my name, what are you, what are you doing? Who are you? Are you getting on this bus? What are you? This guy's crazy. Drives on. But she gets to the next bus stop, and it says, will you? She drives to the next bus stop. There's another guy. Go with me. By this time, people who were supposed to get off the bus were staying on the bus, right? <laughs> the bus is getting more crowded. People pressed up against the window, right? <laughs> Why? So anticipation could build so that at the exact moment as she drives up, she could open that door, and there stands my friend with a dozen roses and some chocolate saying, here I am, right, for you. Why does God orchestrate all of history this way? 
Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. And God so loved the world that he sent his son at the exact moment where he knew the whole world would hear it. So that within the very lifetime of the first followers of Jesus, before the Bible ends, the gospel of Jesus has gone all the way in Paul's mind out to Spain. And not only that, if tradition holds true, the people of India say that Jesus' very disciple Thomas brought it to southern India, that you see within one lifetime of Jesus, the globe is getting covered with the name of Jesus. Why? Because he loves you and he wants you to know, I've come for you. Into the darkness has come a great light. Is there a purpose to his timing? Is there a purpose to the plan? Yes, there is. So you go, well, why make it so difficult? Why the donkey ride? What does that have to do with this? Well, it's interesting in our passage of Galatians 4, it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. When you adopt someone from overseas, you have to journey to where they are and you have to pay to get them out. And God says, I want to adopt these people so my son is going to come be where they are and buy them out. That's what redeem means. And Jesus Christ came not only as God's representative to us, he was our perfect representative before God. That's who he was. That's why he was born of a woman. I'm going to come just like you. I'm not going to come marching in with special privileges. I'm going to walk in like you did. I'm going to be born under the law. I'm going to be born under the same commitments that you were. But I'm going to live them perfectly. And you see through the story of Jesus, he takes on all of our humanity so he can redeem all of our humanity. You see it in Luke's genealogy. If you've ever wondered, why are the genealogies in the Bible? We're like, and so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. You're like, why is this in here? Right? And you pass them. Look at Luke's. It's backing Jesus up, this guy and this dad and this dad and this dad until it finally gets where? It says he was the son of Adam, the son of God. And you see, it wants to show you that Jesus Christ was a part of the human story all the way back to the beginning. He was the son of Adam, the very son of God. And then the very next passage in Luke is Jesus being tempted by the devil. Same experience Adam went through. And yet Jesus prevails. And you see through the story of Jesus' life, he takes on the difficulties of all of us. Egypt, the people of Israel had to go into exile in Egypt. Jesus, when he's born, Herod starts murdering people and Jesus has to flee as a baby to Egypt. You see Jesus takes on the experiences of his people. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 8 says, for our sake, he became poor. That he took on all of our experiences, all of them, so that you can't say, he doesn't know what my life's been like. Jesus doesn't know what I've been through. He was born into poverty. He was tempted like Adam, homeless like Abraham, exiled like the people of God, wandering in the desert like Moses, rejected like the prophets, buried like Jonah. He lived our experience, and yet he lived it totally differently. Though tempted like Adam, he resisted. Though wandering homeless, he remained faithful. Though rejected, he did not revile back. And though murdered, he did not stay dead. And you see, he took on all of our humanity so that he could take on our sin, bury it, and then rise again to redeem us, to buy us out. So do I know why you go through all the pain you do? I don't. But but do I know there's a purpose to the pain? I do. Because the worst day in history became the means for our redemption. 
and God will take Alexander's the greats and rise them up and put them aside and Rome's to rise up to put them aside. Why? So he can build all of history to send you and me a message. I love you and my son has come for you. So what does this mean for us? For some of us, the reason why Simeon celebrated was because Jesus is a light of revelation to the ethnos, to us, to the Gentiles, the nations. And some of you, today's the day the lights come on. I don't know why your life's been organized the way it has, but I know there's someone behind it. I don't know all the purposes for your pain, but I know one purpose in all of life is that we might know it. So that moment in the car with my dad as a kid, I remember he asked me, do you think there's any purpose to all this? And I remember praying at that moment, oh God, my dad's never asked me about spiritual things. And I was like, Lord, I don't have an answer. And I started praying and then I remember I said to my dad, Dad, I know God's number one priority is that you would know him. And he will give you whatever he must give you or he will take whatever he must take to get your attention. And I remember my dad saying that made a lot of sense. And you know what? It does. That yes, the world is dark, but is there a plan behind it? Yes. Is there a purpose in the pain? Yes. Into the darkness, a light has dawned. The sun has come and God moved all of history so you would know today your maker wants a relationship with you and he's purchased it through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, for those of us who know him, you go, well, that's great, but what does it mean for me? Because my life's still a mess. Let me give you two promises. The first promise of Christmas is the peace of knowing there's a plan. That's what Simeon had. He said, sovereign Lord who's running all things, you can dismiss me in peace because I've seen what you prepared in the sight of the people. He says, I don't understand all the mechanics, but I know you're up there. And so he has peace because he knows there's a plan, right? And when we get a glimpse of that, even if God doesn't tell us all the details, we can know, I know God's leading all this. And the plan was proclamation that the gospel may go out. That's why God does everything. So 35 years later, after that Beeville moment, I remember I was at an Angus farm in Texas, one of the largest Angus farms in the country. And I was with the guy who owns it. He was showing it me around. And this place was unbelievable. It was literally heaven for cows. I mean, like, the grass was so lush on these rolling hills. I'm like, I want to live here. This is amazing. And he was showing me the barn where they birthed him and how exact and scientific it was. And then he showed me how each bull has its own stall so it can be maximally comfortable as they fatten them up and then sell them to breed for the rest of their lives. And I'm like, wow, these guys have it pretty good. (laughs) And I remember looking at that moment and I said, this must be the best possible place for a cow to grow up and live its life. I remember Bob said, Oh, we don't let them grow up here. I said, what? He said, no, they don't grow up here. Yeah, I mean, they're born here. You saw the birthing barn. And they end up here before we sell them. You saw the auction area. They don't live their lives here. I said, why not? And he said, well, uh, we got to ship them out. He said, uh, we ship them out to Beeville, Texas. And I said, wait, I'm sorry, what? He said, Beeville, Texas. I'm like, no, I heard, I, no one knows where Beeville, Texas is. Why are you saying? He goes, yeah, we ship them out to Beeville, Texas. And I said, why would you ship anything to Beeville, Texas? It's not a fun place. Pretty hard there. Not a lot of great memories. But he said, if they grow up here, the ground is so lush and so soft that even stepping on the slightest rock will cause their hooves to crack. 
So if they grow up here, it's too easy and it makes them weak, which will cost them their lives. You break a hook, we gotta blow your brains out. It's a bad deal. So as a cow, he says, for their sake, we ship them to Beeville to toughen them up, to make them strong. And I remember as soon as he said that, it was like 35 years of my life just made sense. All in a moment, it was like, shoo, 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 shoo. All of a sudden, I'm like, what? That's why you send people to Beeville? I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And Bob's looking at me like I'm crazy because he thinks we're still talking about cows. He's like, are you all right? I'm like, that's just a great story, Bob. (laughs) But meanwhile, I'm thinking about 2 Corinthians 1 where Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy, the God of comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. He says, God lets us experience pain because then he can comfort us in it. But that comfort is for the sake of the community, that I can share that comfort with others. And then he says something crazy. He says, and if I am afflicted, it's for your comfort. Paul takes it a step further and not just, when I go through hard things, God comforts me, and I use that comfort to help you. He says, and then God will afflict me on purpose, because I'm his. He'll put me through hardship on purpose, and I don't know all the reasons why, but I know one, it's so I can comfort you. So I don't know why God puts us through all this stuff he does. I really don't, but I know one reason why he always does. His purpose is proclamation. I will use every tear and every pain for my purposes, and my purposes are good. They're for a light of revelation to the nations. And it's to the glory of the people of God to be a part of that story. That's your second promise. The first one is the promise of peace, knowing there is a plan. You don't get to know all the details, but you get to know him who does, and that's enough. The second promise is the glory of being part of his story. It contextualizes our pain. That's why you don't hear Mary complain. When the angel comes and says, you're about to be pregnant and I know you're not married yet, it's gonna cause some problems, Joseph's gonna wanna divorce you, all that. She doesn't go, well, you're kind of blowing up my world here, God. And you don't read about her on the donkey going, really, that's not, like you don't read that. (laughs) What does she say? She says, from now on, every generation will call me blessed because what you're doing is what you promised your servant Abraham. She sees herself in the story and it contextualizes her pain that she looks at that and says, there's glory when I get to be part of his story, a light of revelation to the nations and the glory to his people, that the glory for us who know him is that we know, even though I don't know all the specific purposes of my pain, I know the God who reigns over all of it and his purposes are that I get to be part of that story and my glory at the end is that I got to be in the game. I told students that when I ministered at Texas A&M, at Texas A&M University, if you go to football games, Aggies stand throughout the entire game and it's symbolic. The standing is meant to communicate to the coaches and team, if you need me, I'll step in and play. And it's symbolic. (laughs) But I asked them, what if it happened? What if there was a certain game where the coach turned around and pointed at you and said, Sarah, pseudo. What would you do? Probably be a little scared, a little hesitant. But then you realize, I get to be in the game, not just a spectator of the game, but part of the game. I get to wear the uniform. Let's go. And what if you get on the sideline and there's only five yards till a touchdown? He looks at you and says, run it in. What are you going to do? Oh, no, thank you. 
in the middle of a conversation over here that's getting pretty good. No, you want to go be a part? I get to be in the game. I get to contribute to the game. I get to be a part of the story, not just watching it, but an integral piece of it. Yeah, I want to do that. That would be the best moment of my college career. That would be unbelievable. It'd be crazy in that moment if a coach looked at you and said, do you want to be part of the game? But you know what? I don't. You're going to have to run a little bit. It's going to make like your heart beat fast. You'll get like all sweaty. You'd be like, fine, I get to be in the game. Yeah, but someone might bump into you. You know, they'll like hurt your feelings. I don't care. I get to be a part of the game. And so, yeah, I may need physical therapy afterwards, <laughs> but I got a great story. I imagine that was Mary and Joseph. You get to be a part of the light of the glory of God shining in the world. But you're gonna have to go on a donkey ride for like two days. What, what? Fine, fine, I don't care, that's amazing. I get to be a part of the glory of God? Yeah, but before you say yes, let me tell you, booking a hotel in Bethlehem is gonna be murder. I mean, serious. <laughs> it's gonna be more of a hassle than you think. I don't, I don't care. I get to be a part of the story. And look, I'm not trying to minimize anybody's pain and I'm not trying to minimize theirs. Some of us have been through some pretty horrible things that we don't need to excuse. I don't even think you need to thank God for them, but I do think you can have peace because you know even our tragedies can be a part of his story. So you go, I may not know all the specifics, but I know the one who runs this place and the sovereign Lord has been preparing a light for the nations and I get the glory of being part of that story. That's the promise of Christmas. There's a purpose to your pain. There's a logic to your timing. And I don't know it all, but he does. And so you can have peace in knowing him and you can have purpose in knowing him. That's one of the gifts that God's given us, that we can depart this life in peace, knowing the sovereign Lord is guiding the story for his glory and our good.